if I had to be a visual effects artist, that like I would be bored out of my mind if that was all I was doing was visual effects for someone else's movie. But, you know, I get so excited by the idea of telling stories that are a little beyond my ability and a little beyond my resources to tell. And then using these tools that I know I have and pushing them to figure out how to make, how to achieve them. I love how honest Seth is about getting bored with his craft. Sometimes we do need that push to see what we might be capable of. We have the ability to accomplish extraordinary things, but only if we have the courage to step outside of our comfort zone. We talk about this and so much more this week on The Story Podcast. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing? What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. I recently had the opportunity to sit down in Los Angeles with Seth Worley. You're on an airplane, you're in an elevator, whatever. Someone says, what do you do? You lead with IMA. What do you say? Well, that totally depends on where I am. If I'm in L.A., <laughs> Uh, I still have not gotten down what the answer, like how to say the answer without immediately rolling my own eyes or someone else's eyes. But if I'm on a plane, like if I'm in Nashville, I'm, my immediate answer is like, I'm a filmmaker. If you break that down, I'm a, I'm a director and a writer. I do a lot of other things, but those are my, my two main skills and trades. Uh, I primarily full-time do a branded content commercials and short films and branded content for the company I work full-time at, Red Giant, which makes visual effects software for filmmakers, uh, motion graphics artists. I make branded content for, for Red, at Red Giant. I also direct commercials and branded content for clients like Bad Robot and Sandwich Video. And outside of that, I dabble in anything that gets really interesting to me, much to the stress and anxiety of <laughs> myself and everyone in all the other areas of my life that I'm working in. Um, but I'm also, so yeah, I'm a filmmaker. Um, as of this past year, I'm an entrepreneur as well, starting a company on the side that makes tools for filmmakers. My uh, newest venture is a company called Plot Devices that we started to uh, support the overwhelming successful Kickstarter that we had for a product called Story Clock Notebook, which mm -hmm. is a it's a notebook for screenwriters, but it also has applications for all r r wide range of storytellers. It's for outlining and breaking stories and researching stories as well. Um, and so when that Kickstarter kind of launched and kicked off, we needed a company to kind of own it and house it. Sure. And also kind of jumpstart a lot of these other ideas that we had had going. I've always, I have friends who uh, double as filmmakers and then are part-time and their spare time also make tools for filmmakers as well. And I have a lot of uh, admiration for those guys. Um, and I, I get that there's a part of me that will always enjoy uh, exploring and studying the process itself and figuring out how to uh, kind of harness the like, maybe not harness, but kind of uh, tools for working with the 
intangible elements of the process. Totally. And so that's like there's there's that part of me that always you know creatively wants to be fed, and plot devices now is like the is now the place where I'm kind of feeding those that hunger. Uh, while still keeping to my full-time gig of uh, making, uh, writing and directing narrative content. Seth is definitely all of these things. I was so excited to sit down and chat with him about his journey from becoming a filmmaker, creating visual effects, and finding his way to work for J.J. Abrams' company. I think it's harder than a lot of people realize. For me, it's been a struggle to, to go from kind of like the guy who create stuff and perform stuff to the guy that is trying to lead a creative community and keep them inspired. What I'm now realizing is I'm not very good at explaining my process. You know, I think that's a rare gift. Everyone, everyone who is creative, not all of them have the ability to explain how they are creative. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it becomes a new, uh, just like as a writer, you're essentially BSing your way through <laughs> life and work. And I think that what I've found is Still, at the end of the day, even if you can describe your process, about 70 to 80% of it is BS that you as a writer or as a storyteller are making up. Like you are just, you are self-analyzing and like reporting, here's what I think is going on. Here's the evidence I have for it. Um, but I am competently telling you, you know, how this process is working. But really at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, it's Malcolm Gladwell's blink. It's like, it really comes down to like that that instance of decision-making that you can't really dis- uh, explain always why you're making that decision. You can try to and you can get really good at it. I feel like that's where I'm at is where I've gotten pretty good at leaning in the right direction and getting and giving, um, if I'm not properly evaluating my process, I'm at least creating inspiration for other people's processes that will at least be practical and applicable. Seth cut his teeth on making tutorials, first as part of a contest for Lost on ABC, and then later for Red Giant, who commissioned him to make a lot of different tutorials on how to use their software to create special effects for movies. Obviously, you hear special effects, and you think explosions, and well, more explosions, and yes, that is part of it. But Seth says that visual effects are a lot more than just that. So I, I do talks a lot on filmmaking, and a big thing I talk about is vi- is visual effects, and uh, the people have visual effects is anything that is. Um, anytime you use a camera, you use imagery to trick somebody. You use imagery to trick people, and I mean, literally, you uh, are <laughs> technically a visual effects artist, just live on stage. Sure, uh, many parallels, and you know, the very first visual effect on film was a short film made in Thomas Edison's uh, laboratory called "The Execution of Mary, Queen of Scots." where it was a in-camera jump cut where a uh, you had a bunch of people in this like period wardrobe uh, there's like an executioner and uh, he the woman gets on her knees and puts her head down on like the stump and then there's a if, n- we all see it now in our time having seen like you know modern day visual effects we see this jump cut where suddenly it's a dummy and he swings the axe down and the dummy head falls off but if you didn't like to audiences then like it was a horrifying thing to see, um, but that was arguably the first visual effect ever on film. But what's funny is it was also the first time anyone had ever said, "Hey, let's get some actors and let's put them in costumes and put them on on screen." So it was the first time actors were ever put uh, in front of a, uh, a film camera. At the same time that the first time we ever did a visual effect, and so visual effects and actors are equally integral to the um, storytelling process of filmmaking. Um, that's what I tell filmmakers 
when I'm teaching or anything like that all the time, which is like, don't film, visual effects are not a new development. They're, you know, green screens and tentacle beards and explosions and spaceships in the sky. These are just what we're doing now. But it really, it's all, it's about, anytime you put people in a costume and put them um, in front of a camera, um, doing something that they aren't doing when you say cut, like that's a visual effect. That is a lie that you're telling the audience. Creating an illusion that looks real, basically. Exactly. And yeah. some people just, um, you know, my favorite directors are ones who, uh, like Robert Zemeckis, who directed Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Contact. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, when I saw the behind the scenes for that um, when I was a kid, it was this like realization that like grownups did this for a living. Like the um, specifically, you know, there that's a movie where there are live action, it's a live action world, but there are animated characters, 2D animated characters walking around. and But the 2D animated characters have they have uh, live action props in their hands. Like the weasels are walking around with these real guns. And that footage before they ever drew the cartoons on was like an Invisible Man movie. And so like, you know, the behind the scenes of these people like with like guns on strings, like puppeteering guns around and like simulating water, like going, and it was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And you know, as an adult, I look at that and it's like, they didn't have to do that, but they, they did it because, and you have to understand this for what you do for a living, like, being aware of the audience's uh, perception of your abilities and of your limitations and using that to your advantage. So like you, the knowing what the audience thinks you're capable of doing and thinks that you have available to you and using that information to wow them and go beyond that. Those are like, you know, the storytellers and filmmakers that have inspired me since I was a kid. I don't remember how I got on this. It was visual effects. Yeah. Like that's so, like, I have always had a fascination with visual effects, not from a... Not from a standpoint of like his visual effects alone. If I had to be a visual effects artist, I would be bored out of my mind if that was all I was doing was visual effects for someone else's movie. But I get so excited by the idea of telling stories that are a little beyond my ability and a little beyond my resources to tell. And then using these tools that I know I have and pushing them to figure out how to make how to achieve them and how to... Yeah, because, I mean, a building blowing up is not a story, right? Like, there's a lot of guys that rag on the Michael Bay kind of films because there's not... They may not feel like there's enough of a meaningful story there. It's just a bunch of action and special effects. And so. that's... And, and, you know, and people blame the visual effects for that, but we don't blame the visual effects that are in amazing film, like, you know, films that we love because we're so focused on the story and we're so focused on the storytelling and we don't rag on those visual effects because they're not being relied on solely you know, for a variety of things. Yeah, yeah sure. We so, could talk for hours about that. Uh, totally, but, totally. Yeah. And that I wish we could because I'd learn a lot myself too. But that understanding is what I think has led you to the position you're in of having this awesome gig and having clients. Like, I mean, you get to work with J.J. Abrams' company for crying out loud. That's pretty cool. And there's yeah. a lot of people in this town who are like, that's like their dream is to work with someone like that. I live a life much like that of Forrest Gump. Um, <laughs> where, you know, it seems like he's just stumbling into the most huge parts of history and then just returning to Greenville, Alabama. And then like the next <laughs> season, he's this ping pong, you know, world champion ping pong player. And it's like, I feel like that daily because so much of my life has been me thinking, that would be really cool if this happened. And then it happening. Um, uh, I can't take full credit for those achievements, but you know, like for example, you know, JJ is like one of my creative heroes and huge inspirations and was through Lost in Star Trek, essentially that season uh, was a huge creative like 
kind of blossoming period for me of like transitioning to like a new stage of my creative life mm-hmm. and of my my finding new elements of my own voice were through being inspired by his work during that period of time and all the behind the scenes of those pieces and uh, and ripping him off essentially, just like <laughs> stealing from him. And so it was amazing that like within that season, I, I had gotten to have a meeting at that one meeting, Bad Robot, that I th- it was a phone meeting that I thought went terribly because it was a phone meeting first off and all phone <laughs> meetings go terribly. Um, but also just because I was awkward and weird and I'm, I'm weird in general meetings when there isn't a goal where I'm just supposed to talk about myself and what I like. I had had one meeting, but then, and I thought I'd never hear from him again. And then I got this call while I was on the set of a, short, a Red Giant short saying, hey, we're doing a commercial for Star Trek. Uh, would you be interested in directing? And it was basically like, hey, would you like to come work for your hero working on a commercial <laughs> that's connected to one of your favorite franchises? Um, go ahead and think about it as if you don't already know the answer. And what, what was going through your head in that moment? Uh, yes, yes. Stop talking so I can say yes. Like, really? Yeah. It was just like, well, You actually, didn't do the whole like, Play a cool Seth. Pretend like you're like gonna. Oh, think anyone it who through. knows me knows that I do not play it cool whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and when I try to, I just make things very awkward and uncomfortable. Um, no, I'll tell you the first thing that went through my head on that moment was um, like thousands of like thoughts that go through your head of like, is this going to be okay with my wife? Is she going to be like, will I have to travel for this? And will she be able to take care? It was all like the that side of things. Like, will my wife be cool with this? And then the second, you know. I realized it was a yes. It was more of a how quickly can I hang up and call everyone I know? Yeah. <laughs> it's valuable. Yeah. And it's been situations like that, you know, not one after the other, but it's been more of those than I feel entitled to. Of um, course. Whatsoever. This is what I hear all the time when I sit down and talk to guys like you who feel grateful and humbled by the opportunities that they have. I just met a producer of what is probably the most successful animated film of all time yesterday. And he said the same thing. It's like, I've just been really lucky. I've just been really lucky. And I noticed that thread, but at the same time, I don't think it has everything to do with luck. And so as someone who is kind of oozing and dripping with humility, I get that sense from you. What do you feel like you are doing that put yourself in a position that makes you think, this is why they called me and offered me that? Do you think you know what it was? Um, Realistically, I think that it is a combination of a lot of variables, and I think that the majority of those variables are completely outside of my control. What I can, you know, talk about from my perspective of what I, what it was under my control and what is still sure. are just the work that's put in front of me and committing to the work that's put in front of me, even while pining for whatever that work is out there that I really want. I've never gotten a job by sending my reel anywhere. I've never gotten a job by like sending my resume somewhere or cold calling someone. It's always been an opportunity to drop to my lap because somebody saw my work, my saw previous work of mine. And that previous work was almost always something that I did on assignment that was like where someone said, hi, we need this. Can you make it interesting and cool? Uh, and me just saying yes and making it as interesting and cool as I could and having a fulfilling experience from that. You know, like I've had more opportunity from those from those situations for work that was brought to me uh, than I have from the work that I created for myself with a few notable exceptions. And so I think, I think you know, they talk about luck. It's luck meets preparedness, sure. you know. And yeah. I think the preparedness part for a long time was a natural thing for me of just being obsessively nerdy about the things that I loved. And when you're young, there's a lot of, there's a lot to learn. And when you're young, you also have time and energy to learn all of it at your own pace, which is, for me, was like nonstop all the time. 
consuming and trying things and having enough resources to be able to go and like film things and film people and try stuff. Now, it, and not that I'm older, not that I'm like significantly old, I'm only 33, but like even just in my 30s now, I'm finding that like the learning has to be even more proactive and I have to actually be strategic about what it is I'm trying to learn in these new seasons because the things that naturally, you naturally learn by doing and by starting something the momentum doesn't get going on its own as much anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think it's about constantly learning and being prepared and constantly committing to the work that's put in front of you. At least that's what it's been like for me. Yeah. So I'm hanging out here in your office in LA and you don't have a boss around to tell you what to do. I Which, killed him. <laughs> is his body in this room somewhere? Yeah, somewhere. I probably shouldn't ask him. any more if questions. If you find him, you win a free story <laughs> clock notebook. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my question is then how... How do you show up to work every single day and do what you need to do? Because it's something I see a lot of freelancers and artists struggle with specifically. Uh, you, you, but you have to have some sort of self-driven motivation. Oh, I have the most arbitrary rules. Uh, literally collared shirts. Uh, I have to wear a collared shirt. I can't show up to work in a t-shirt. Really? It's so dumb. It's this, It's this. Um, I think it comes from working at Lifeway Christian Resources for five years <laughs> where I had a dress code and had to wear like, couldn't wear jeans. Um, uh, really? That's a thing? You know, well, it, it, not anymore. They're allowed to wear jeans now okay. after I left. Uh, um, nice. But like, so Life, Lifeway was my first like big boy job that I, I, I started at when I was like 22, 23. And I went into that job kicking and screaming, wanting to be this cool freelancer and stay this cool freelancer who was making, in retrospect, pennies. Um, <laughs> and in retrospect, literally going nowhere, just staying stagnant in the freelance work I was doing. But at the time I thought, this is the life, it's what I want. And uh, we're about to have our first, our, our first kid and I had this opportunity to go to get a full-time job and not just work at Starbucks and be freelance. And so I, but I went and kicking and screaming, thinking I am so much cooler than this place, blah, 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 blah. And that turned into one of the most creatively fruitful seasons of my life. I had an amazing team I worked with. I have long lasting friendships that I've formed from that job. And, and so I think that subconsciously, you know, I have to show up to work in a collared shirt for me to, I don't have to, but like it helps me feel like I'm a grown up going and doing a grown up job, even though no one's, making me get up and go in. Having a th having a, a second location, like having this office is great. Um, but even if I'm working from home at a desk, uh, I got to have shoes on and I have to have a collared shirt. I don't have a requisite for pants. Apparently I don't have to wear pants. <laughs> I've not tried it. But uh, shoes and a collared shirt, it just says I'm at work. I'm taking this seriously. Yeah. And I have so much going on. Like I've, I've now diversified my creative, <laughs> my professional life so much in the past several years that – I kind of have to show up to work, or I feel that crushing, yeah. that crushing burden. Of people are going to you're going to start getting emails. People yeah. are going to bug you, going, "Hey, yeah. where are we on that?" Yeah, thing? for yeah. better or for worse. Yeah, it was weird at first, you know, going from Lifeway to Red Giant and being able to work from home and make my own schedule, and that was, you know, weird because what was weird that I didn't expect to be weird was Red Giant being like, "Okay, what do you want to do next?" Hmm. And they're still like they're very, very supportive of me, and they very supportive of any creative like project I want to take on with them or outside of Red Giant. But consistently ask me, what do you want to do next? What's the next project you want to make? And having that kind of freedom, it really mm -hmm. stressed me out. And I couldn't figure out why for the longest time. Are you under the impression that that's just your relationship with them and your agreement? Or do you think that's just a, the culture of Red Giant? Well, the culture of Red Giant is amazing. It's very much a, everyone has a great deal of freedom yeah. um, to it do their jobs. Like and to do their jobs how they want to do it. And that's probably um, where so much of the creativity is coming from versus this top-down, like, hey, this is what we want you guys working on. They've created a culture where, hey, Seth, if you're in the shower and you get a good idea, 
come tell us about it, and we'll just give you the green light and say, go make stuff. Yeah, and that stressed me out when I first started because it was a it was like a blue sky situation, and I found that my creative process had relied so much on limitations um, and requirements. You know, like when I was at Lifeway, they'd hand me a five-day Bible study for camps and say, make a narrative five-episode series based around these. They don't have to say God, but they need to reinforce the themes of each day. And the first day would be called literally be called something like faith to win or like, <laughs> like something that was like overwhelming victory. And it was like on day one. It's like, okay, so I have to start with victory, and then where do you go from there? Um, but I learned, like, but having those limitations were amazing because it, it gave me peace of mind. And so it was interesting for me at Red Giant having, you know, you can do whatever you want um, <laughs> and figure out how to create order from that because yeah. it's essentially chaos. And I found that was in the products. It was in finding kind of a skeletal structure to form, you know, muscle around of our product line and our product launch calendar. Um, you know, we had kind of developed a a model for like, okay, we have a product launch coming up. What content goes around it? Like, is there an, if early on? It was, is there a short film that we can make about this? And our best shorts were the ones that we that we created from scratch around the product launch. The worst ones were the ones where one of us had a really cool idea for a short, and we just retrofitted it to this product launch. Like, oh, we can like as long as we use the product in it, it'll be fine. I'm going to explain what Seth means here because it'll be important going on. For some of the shorts that he's directed, he already had a story concept and then he tried to graft the product he was supposed to be marketing into the story, whether or not there was any thematic connection. And it never worked very well. In fact, he says one of them had the worst writing he's ever done in his life. But then some of the shorts he actually built around the product organically and authentically. Those stories, he says, would almost always work way better. You know, I had a screenwriting professor tell me, in my limited experience at college, told me um, that comedy can never be injected, it can only be extracted. Um, I've never forgotten that because I think it's so true. And I think it's true about all elements of storytelling, like of, of a great story. All the elements need to feel like they were extracted from with from this world that it's in existence and not, and nothing can be arbitrarily dropped in or injected, which, yeah. I don't. You know, I forgot what the original question was, but that was a. Uh, yeah, no, that's yeah. great. You answered the original question. Oh, I, I, what's cool about this is every time I ask you a question, it, it keeps coming back to story for you. Um, and well, I know the name of this podcast, <laughs> 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 um, but I mean, it's. I mean, again, you. There are very successful filmmakers in this city who still are somehow making films on millions of dollars with the budgets and still don't put story first, it feels like. They try to. I mean, that's the thing you have to remember is everyone tries to. Like, the majority of people out there are trying to make the best version of the thing that they've been handed, especially when you look at things like Justice League or, you know, a large uh, IP that's a, a pro, you know, large intellectual property that's out there. You will, no one has handed it and, and wants to phone it in. They're doing the best they can. It's a large machine and a large sure. parts. So you have to give them benefit of the doubt. I love Gordon McKenzie's outlook on creativity that it's like the, you know, like collagen on the back of your eyeballs that project shadows on your retina, that like floaters, the squigglies that are mm -hmm. kind of always there. Mm -hmm. um, when you look directly at them, they float away. But when you stop trying to look at them, they come back into view. And um, Gordon Kinsey talks about that as like creativity is like that. And I think that I think that story is like that too. I think we get hung up so much on 
it's really fun to, and I'm saying this to the guy who runs the story conference, but it's really <laughs> fun to romanticize and talk about the importance of story, you know, and every filmmaker and every EPK and behind the scenes piece these days is like, you know, what it comes down to is the story and the characters. That's what really <laughs> matters. And it's like, well, yeah, duh, like no shit, man. Like yeah. that's, that's why we're all here. But when you are, when you focus too intently on that, story is a thing that has to feel like has to feel like it organically happened naturally from itself. And I think that you have to, it comes when you are focused on something just beyond it, just apart from it. The stuff that's coming back to you is the stuff that wants to be told. Um, I'm getting real abstract here. No, you're, you're hitting on one of my passion subjects and something I haven't really quite figured out how to articulate yet. I just know it's, it's like happening in culture and it makes me uncomfortable. Again, as the person who runs Story Conference, like I want people who work for agencies and advertising people to come because story is now a buzzword, right? The story, the idea of storytelling, everybody in branding world's like, it's all about storytelling and the story of the brand. And so they all want to come learn how to tell better stories. And now that has created an entire like subculture of like a market of resources, basically of like, here's the framework. And yes, which is has, essentially, which essentially what I did club. too. Yeah, exactly. And, and but, that's the danger. That's what, you know, you can, uh, my co-founders plot devices in the story clock notebook. We, you can ask them how terrified I am down to the little details of how we word everything of like, I'm not like a guru of storytelling. Like I do, I don't want to project myself as that. I don't want to project this as a, like the story clock notebook or anything as a self-help, like how to make a million dollar screenplay. In fact, we try to sarca be sarcastic about that throughout our mm -hmm. messaging mm -hmm. to, you know, to almost pretend that we are like promising a million dollar. Yeah. You know? I don't, because I think it's important that, you know, like you said, like it's become this framework and it's become this thing that people think story is something that can be airdropped in or injected. Like it's something going back to that talking about that. I talked about tempo earlier, you know, it's got great action sequences in it. Like, and it's got things that I love about it, but it's overall, it was, a, I learned on that, that there is such thing as unnecessary uh, character development and unnecessary story that if you put story where it doesn't belong, like story is not always a positive, it can be a negative force. Uh, and it can be like an extra unnecessary baggage. Like anything in a story, anything in a creative property, any creative project or property that doesn't need to be there is hurting it. And I learned on that, like what should have been a simple, you know, one, two, three punch, like action little short that was like all external conflict. I felt like I wanted to, we had just come hot off of a, a short prior to that that was the first time I kind of started dealing with actual like character like drama development within a comedy and it was a short called form 17 that was essentially uh take your daughter to work day for a bomb squad for a bomb diffuser and <laughs> and that story was really about a dad trying to impress his daughter and worried about being irrelevant and not being interesting to his daughter and we worked with amazing actors on that and i love that experience and i wanted to keep that going um on this next the sci-fi short that i wanted to do and instead of just doing making a cool sci-fi, you know, action short, I tried to inject this character development into it and the story development and it hurt it in a great way to where like, yeah, there's cool action in there, but people have to sit through some really cheeseball stuff that, and it's because it was just arbitrarily dropped in. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you, we talk all, you know, we hear people talking about how important story is and it's all about the story and the characters. And it's like, well, if it really is, like, why are you talking about it? Like, I know that's, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's, I think that, you know, it's people need to realize that story is is just 
just like visual effects, just like the <laughs> some actor that you want to work with or that is like the son of your producer, like dropping something into something, into a creative project that doesn't belong there, that wasn't there originally, doesn't feel like it came out of it. Um, Maybe that's what it is. It's going to hurt it. Yeah. I don't really know how to articulate the tension I'm Clearly feeling. neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're doing a great job because you keep you keep like pushing the conversation in my head forward. I think my my discomfort is the the hey, here's the framework on how to tell great stories and you can use this to sell stuff. Um, and then I I have specifically heard speakers stand up on stage who are marketing people who read McKee's books or Joseph Campbell's stuff and and they lean and uh, like they say things like, "Yeah, my wife hates going to the movies with me because I lean in and be like, that guy's going to die in twenty four seconds." And and I'm like, that might be true of some if you know the frameworks. You're like, I would hate going to the movies with you too. <laughs> like, well, it's not just that, but what about all the movies that break the rules and don't follow the framework to a T? And then like, because I think my tension is that stories feel like like good stories feel alive and magical, and you can't always predict every single thing that's going to happen and those are the films that win oscars that break the rules right and so we take this living magical wonder-filled thing and we reduce it down to some rules and it's like oh here's the save the cat framework if you follow this then you can tell stories well, save too. the cat is amazing and so is joseph campbell and so I is agree. Robert it's McKee, all, and so is story clock This is something Seth is passionate about, making sure there's a sharp divide between things that help you tell a better story and the story itself. If you have to use structure and tropes to tell a story the right way, then do it. But don't mistake those things for the actual story. Otherwise, he says, you risk sacrificing authenticity for the sake of professionalism. I believe that like real authentic voice comes from this crazy Venn diagram of what you want to do what you have to do, what you have, what you don't have, and some other things that I've forgotten but are in other th- places yeah. I've talked about before. But it's you get the idea it's in compromise. It's in it's in reconciling what you're handed and given and, say, and asked to make or what you're asked to make something for. Even if it's like an opportunity like, hey, we have a camera for the weekend. Like I don't have to turn, return the Amira until Monday, so let's shoot something. So then you're like, okay, well, I have an Amira which is a camera, who do I have to be in this? And do we have like a prop or something? What can we make? Like, what can we make from what we have to work with? Rather than going, what can we make? Like, and and starting from like the grand scope of like, I've always wanted to make Lawrence of Arabia in the jungle. <laughs> like, you, like you don't, if you're not in the jungle, that makes, that's yeah. not a, you know, practical yeah. approach yeah. to things. It's all about what you have, what you've been given and what you're being asked for. And starting there, even as mundane as it may be, it's like up to you, it's your job as the artist and the storyteller to elevate that to a place that is interesting to you. Maybe it's that storytelling is an art and there's people who are trying to turn it into a science and that's where the source of discomfort comes from. So that's where I feel the tension. Yes, and I think that I understand why it becomes a science because I think we need the science for for the comfort to feel like it's, it's something approachable, something we can harness and something that we can rely on in times of... Um, need in times where of you know writer's block or in times where the work sucks and we don't know what to write next we don't know what to do like we like to know and feel that that there is a practical three-step approach to fixing this problem that we can lean on if we get tired or if we get you know get stuck and that is why those things are those things are there to like help you like get back on track or help you feel confident about the choices you're making Mm -hmm. um you know, I find 
so much of nowadays of Save the Cat and Joseph Campbell and not just archetypes and methodologies, but actual movies and stories that I love themselves having like part of the reason the first half of the story clock notebook, which eventually we will explain what it is, but the first half of it (laughs) uh, being devoted to research is about having your research and your ideas in the same book is because so often you want to go back to the stories that you love and that influence you and look and see literally what choices they're making when they're making them and how it compares to what you're working on or how it compares to what you're about to dive into and develop. And nowadays it's, yes, it's helpful at the starting point to be like, okay, I have kind of a roadmap that's for me to compare to and lean on, on for, and it makes me feel safe because uh, writing can be a very lonely venture by yourself in the weeds. You don't know if you're going in the right direction. So having someone else's map from someone else's experience to look at going in is great, but it's even more valuable when you're in the weeds and you're by yourself and you're feeling lost to be able to look and compare your journey to it and be like, Oh, you know what? I'm not too far off track. Like I did this on this page. I did this on this page. I just need to keep going and I'll be fine. You know, comparison, you know, is a a bad thing in a lot of ways when you're comparing your success to others. But I think when comparing your projects to others, like, is a really great way to keep yourself from wanting to die in the middle of the process. I think map is a good word for it. I've never thought about that analogy before. I think what what a lot of people think they want or what they need is, like, detailed instructions. And what they really just need is a map because then they still get to have their own journey with their own perspective and memories. Like, you and I could both have the same map that goes to the same place. But when we get to that same place, we're like, Hey, how was your trip? It's two completely different trips, totally different set of stories, but we worked from the same map and the map is what we needed to give us the confidence to go. I think I can get there. Yeah. When I was doing tutorials, I found, or not just doing, but watching tutorials, which is how I learned after effects and visual effects was like watching people like Andrew Kramer, um, and Ryan Connolly, a film, right? Like watching in Arnold Benowitz at Red Giant, like watching these guys' tutorials, I would watch like the first half, if that, and I would suddenly get, I would see enough things that I didn't know existed in After Effects that they were doing to either get my own idea for something completely unrelated to what, you know, they were trying to teach me in that video, or I kind of saw, oh, I know how to get where they're going from what they've got right there, and I would end up going and doing my own thing and learning it on my own. I think a lot of the times it just helps to have that example there to kind of reveal at least one like at least one thing that you hadn't thought of that unlocks your journey. It's just like, I didn't realize I could take this path. And whether or not you're going to take the entire path that they've trajected that this other person did, you still are like, oh, I didn't know that was an option. I can walk through the forest? Okay. I don't know what I'm talking about here, but like, <laughs> you know, I thought I had to stay on the road, but if I don't have yeah. to stay on the road, then yeah. oh my God, that opens up my mind. And it's like yeah. seeing other people break the rules, seeing other people follow the rules in interesting ways, and just knowing the rules and how they work so that you can feel confident breaking them and confident, you know, following them. Such an interesting way to look at how we can learn from our creative heroes. Do you know what the rules are in your work so that you can know how to break them? And do you know when the right time to follow them might be? So good. Something to think about. This is only part one of this incredible conversation with Seth. We've never had to break up a conversation into two episodes before, but there was just too much incredible content that you need to hear. So next time, we'll talk more about the framework that he uses in his Story Clock Notebook and how it can be applicable to your work. As always, thank you for listening to the Story Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and tell your friends about us. It means more than you'll ever know. Talk to you again very soon. Mm -hmm.